Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. As we continue our study of the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 13. Christ said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Four out of five adults in America now say that they are alarmed about the moral condition of our nation. Four out of five. And they should be. Uh, recent statistics indicate that the morals of Americans are plummeting with each new generation. A lot of studies could be cited here. Let me just give you this sample from a 2008 Barna report titled, Young Adults Ignore Traditional Morality. It says, one of the most stunning outcomes from the Barna survey was the moral pattern among adults under age 25. The younger generation was more than twice as likely as all other adults to engage in behaviors considered morally inappropriate by traditional standards. Their choices made even the baby boomers, never regarded as a paragon of traditional morality, look like moral pillars in comparison. For instance, the younger group known as Mosaics was nine times more likely than boomers to have engaged in sex outside of marriage, six times more likely to have recently lied, three times more likely to have gotten drunk or to have gossiped, and twice as likely as boomers to observe pornography and to have engaged in acts of vengeance. 2016 survey went on to examine the views of morality among Generation Z, and that was at the time uh, teenagers, age 13 to 19. The survey found that only 34% of Generation Zers believe that lying is morally wrong. Only 29% believe that abortion is wrong. Only 38% believe that marriage should be a lifelong commitment between a husband and wife. Only 21% believe that sex before marriage is morally wrong. And only 20% believed that homosexual behavior is morally wrong. It's clear that our nation is taking a moral nosedive. And only you can stop it. The Lord Jesus called his disciples to be salt and light in the middle of a corrupt world, a decadent culture. He urged us to guide the world toward faith in God and the restoration of biblical moral convictions in society. 
First of all, the Lord Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. What he means by that is that his disciples are to be agents of purification in society. You probably know that salt had a number of different purposes in the ancient world, and there are two that people ordinarily appeal to to interpret Jesus' statement here. One of the uses of salt was as a preservative. In a day before refrigeration, meat could decay very rapidly, and so it would be rubbed down with salt. The salt would cure it by killing the bacteria that caused decay. Some people have consequently argued that when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, he's saying that we are the preservatives of society. I've never been convinced by that. Because I think that the last thing that God would want for our world is for us to preserve society as it presently is. He wants us to be agents of change. He wants us to improve society, not simply maintain the status quo. Another common use of salt was as an agent of purification. And I'm convinced that this is what Christ has in mind here. Now, ordinarily in Scripture, things that are white serve as symbols of purity. For example, snow serves as a symbol of purity and cleanness. Bleached wool serves as a symbol of purity and cleanness. Salt, also because of its white color, serves as a symbol of purity and cleanness. And there's abundant evidence of that in both the Old Testament and in the New. The Old Testament teaches us, for example, that salt would be added to sacrifices for two reasons. One was it represented the everlasting nature of God's covenant, but it also served to purify the offering. Exodus 30, 35 says that the incense offering is to be, quote, salted and pure and sacred. Adding the salt, that symbol of purity due to its whiteness, symbolized the purity and sacredness of the offering. We see a similar thing, though, in Ezekiel 16, 4. The scripture tells us there that a newborn child would first be washed with water immediately after childbirth, but then rubbed down with salt. The washing with water physically cleansed the child, but rubbing it down with salt seems to have ritually purified the child. Another example would be 2 Kings 2.21. The prophet Elisha comes to a contaminated spring, and he cast salt into the contaminated spring with these words, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. And the Lord Jesus seems to use salt with the same sense. An example would be in Mark 9, 49, where the Lord Jesus says, everyone will be salted with fire. There, the fire seems to be the imagery of the refiner's fire. You submit contaminated precious metal to the refiner's fire, the fire melts away the dross and it purifies 
the precious metal, the gold, or the silver. And yet in this context, rather than saying everyone will be purified with the refiner's fire, Christ uses the imagery of being salted with the refiner's fire. It is clear that the salting is a reference to purification. So, when the Lord Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's saying that his followers should have a purifying effect on the society that surrounds them. Now, how do we do that? Well, some people will think we purify society by moral protest, by political involvement, by social activism. When we think of being the salt of the earth, we automatically think of decrying the sins of our nation, boycotting advertisers who sponsor sinful conduct, picketing for uh, the rights of the unborn at an abortion clinic and that kind of thing. But I'm convinced that that is not what Jesus has in mind. I'm not saying that those things are bad, although I don't think that they are nearly as effective as we might hope, but I am saying that that is not what Jesus has in mind here. Why? Well, notice two little details about Jesus' statement. First of all, he says, you are the salt of the earth. He uses the definite article, and this is what is known as the monadic use of the definite article, the, and it means that something is the one and only one of its kind. The implication is that Jesus' disciples have a capacity to purify culture that no one else possesses. And this is going to be emphasized even further by the emphatic use of the pronoun you. Now, the pronoun you is actually built into the verb form in Greek, so you don't have to have a separate explicit pronoun. When it's added, it is emphatic. And so the sense of the text in the original Greek is this, you are the one and only salt of the earth. And so maybe now you've already anticipated the problem with our common approaches to purifying society. If Christians are the one and only salt of the earth, then we must not do our purifying by boycotting advertisers or picketing or protesting or voting for conservatives and that kind of thing because anybody can do that, right? Jews and Muslims and Hindus and even atheists and agnostics can boycott and protest and vote wisely. If those were the actions that Jesus had in mind, he could not have said, you, my followers, are the one and only salt of the earth. He's obviously referring to some kind of ministry and purifying society that others are not capable of. And so how then are we to purify society? I think the Lord Jesus has two things in mind. Number one, we serve to purify society 
by modeling exemplary righteousness. The Lord Jesus is going to teach a little later in the Sermon on the Mount that his true followers are characterized by a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees who were known as the paragons of virtue, the models of righteousness in the ancient world. In other words, when people want a good example of righteousness, they should be able to look at whatever Christians they know and see that exemplified in their daily living. And through our very example, we can have a positive influence on culture. That's what Christ is going to say in the text we look at next week when he says, "Light your light so shine before men, what? That they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Even unbelievers will sometimes be moved to worship and praise God because of the transformation that he has wrought in the lives of Jesus' followers. Sometimes, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, our righteousness incites persecution. Others are angry at our choice to live differently. But sometimes when people behold the righteousness of the Christian disciple, they will be moved to repentance. So our very surpassing righteousness can have a purifying effect on the world. But of equal importance, if not greater importance, is this. Jesus' disciples served to purify culture by sharing the gospel of the kingdom, which is the only power on earth that can change a sinner's heart and life. The Baptist Faith and Message says correctly in its article on the Christian and the social order that the only permanent means for positively changing society rests in, quote, the regeneration of the individual through the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Baptists, we recognize that if we want to transform culture, it's going to be one soul at a time. As we share the gospel with them, and they are moved to repent of their sin, believe in Jesus as God's Savior and King, because that changes everything. In verse 14, Jesus will say, you are the light of the world. And we're going to see next week that that is essentially a missionary mandate. But do you see the parallelism between you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world? The you are the matches in both sentences and of the earth and of the world are parallel phrases. And the implication is that salt and light are metaphors with a similar meaning and function in this context. And my point is, if being the light of the world is a missionary mandate, being the salt of the earth is as well. The only way we are capable of transforming society is by being faithful in evangelism and missions. We so quickly resort to every other means to change the world around us. And then we wonder why things just get worse and worse and worse and worse. 
And it's because we're trying to change culture man's way, not God's way. It is the gospel of this holy book that takes sinners and makes them saints. Our number one strategy for purifying culture must be faithfully sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, to some people, it might sound a little bit arrogant to say that Christians, the followers of Jesus Christ, are alone the one and only purifying agents of the world. Who do you think you are? That sounds a little arrogant and pompous to me. But actually, there's plenty of hard data to substantiate this claim. A survey involving over a thousand American adults back in 2003 showed that people of other religions were 11 times more likely to approve of abortion than evangelical Christians, 10 times more likely to approve of pornography than evangelical Christians, seven times more likely to approve of fornication and adultery than evangelical Christians, and eight times more likely to condone homosexual acts than evangelical Christians. What's the point? Embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ changes your worldview and it changes your moral convictions. Same survey found that atheists and agnostics were 18 times more likely to approve of abortion than evangelical Christians, 14 times more likely to approve of pornography than evangelical Christians, 10 times more likely to approve of fornication and adultery than evangelical Christians, and 11 times more likely to condone homosexual acts than evangelical Christians. What's the point? Faith in God and belief in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ changes our perspective on what is right and what is wrong. And it transforms our ability to pursue what is right and refrain from what is wrong. I think I may have shared with you in another context a conversation that I had with a church member in my second pastorate many years ago now. Uh, uh, this particular church member was very involved politically and uh, always involved in uh, boycotts and protests and that kind of thing. And at his invitation, Julie and I had actually gone and we had participated in several uh, pro-life marches and that kind of thing. But the invitation just kept coming and, and frankly, I just didn't have time. I was in the doctoral program, I was a full-time pastor, I was teaching Greek part-time at a local seminary, I was completely overwhelmed and I had to start telling him, I'm sorry, I just can't do this. And next thing I know, he starts accusing me of, of not really believing in the cause of life, uh, not really being opposed to uh, murder which is what abortion is. And I said, oh no, my convictions about that are deep. I just think I can fight the battle better another way. 
And he said, how could you possibly do it another way? I said, well, let me ask you this. How many marches have you participated in? And he gave me the number. It was an incredibly high one. And I said, in all your marches, how many people do you know you have moved from a pro-abortion position to a pro-life position? He kind of stuttered and tried to evade. I said, no, answer the question. How many people's views have you changed? He couldn't name a single one. I said, just this last week, I shared the gospel with the mayor and his wife. The mayor seems to be under conviction. His wife confessed faith in Jesus as God's Savior and King. And we've already had several conversations in since in which she has abandoned her pro-abortion position and has now embraced the sanctity of life. I said, now let me ask you, which approach is more helpful and effective? Well, he refused to answer the question. <laughs> but the answer is obvious, isn't it? The most effective means for transforming society is the gospel of the Lord Jesus. As Jesus Christ transforms a person's thinking and their character and their behavior one soul at a time. But then the Lord Jesus gives us a stern warning. He says, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, the translation here is a bit confusing. Uh, the verb that is translated as losing its taste is the Greek verb morino. And it never refers to losing flavor anywhere else in all of ancient Greek literature. Never has that sense. This is the meaning that translators assume Jesus must have intended in context, but it has no parallel anywhere. Uh, the verb morino is actually related to our word moron. It literally means to become foolish. So what Christ is saying here is if the salt becomes foolish or if the salt acts foolishly, how can its saltiness be restored? Now, that may be confusing to us until we remember that foolishness in the Bible is not a description of a person's intellect. Foolishness is a description of their moral and spiritual state. Several examples of that. Old Testament, Psalm 53, the psalmist says, The fool has said in his heart, one plus one equals three. No, that's not what he said. The fool has said in his heart, the earth is flat. No, that's not what he said. He said, the fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. And why has the fool denied the existence of God? Because the fool doesn't want a creator interfering with the way he wants to live his own life. And so the psalmist goes on to say that this fool who says there is no God is corrupt and does vile deeds. 
Their denial of the existence of God is an effort to justify and excuse their corruption and vile deeds. So my point is, foolishness in the Old Testament isn't an intellectual issue. It is a moral and spiritual one. And we see the same thing in the teaching of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to talk about two builders in a parable. You've got a wise builder and you've got a foolish builder. And the wise builder builds his house on the rock. And the foolish builder builds his house on the sand. And what does the foolish builder represent? The Lord Jesus explains the fool is the one who hears his teaching and refuses to obey it. The problem is not that he's dumb. The problem is not that he's an idiot. It is that he is a rebel who is rejecting the authority of Jesus' teaching and refusing to submit to Jesus' commands. Consequently, when the Lord Jesus speaks of the salt becoming foolish, he's talking about those who claim to be his disciples and those who are supposed to be purifying the world, acting like fools by hearing his teaching and refusing to obey it. In other words, those who are called to purify are themselves living impurely. And Christ's point is that when the agent of purification is itself impure, it cannot purify anything. It will not have a purifying effect on the world around it. It will only deepen and heighten the world's corruption. So, the Lord Jesus then asked this question. If the salt becomes foolish, how can its saltiness be restored? And what he means by that is, how can its power to purify be restored? And the answer to this rhetorical question is, it can't be. Not totally and completely. It can't be. And the point that Christ is making is that divine forgiveness removes all of the eternal consequences of our sin. But divine forgiveness does not remove all the temporal consequences of our sin. And when followers of Jesus Christ who are called upon to have a purifying effect in the world themselves live in purity themselves fall into scandal. Their ability to positively impact the world around them is forever hindered. Think about it this way. Uh, assume that there is a pastor who commits adultery. Can he be forgiven? so that God no longer holds that sin against him on judgment day? Absolutely. But will his ministry ever be the same? Here's a man who preached biblical moral convictions week after week after week after week, 
But all along, he was living a lie. All along, he was hiding his own secret sin. Oh, no. His ministry would never be the same thereafter. There would always be a concern about the safety of the wives and daughters in the church fellowship. People's guard would always be up wondering, could we really, really trust this man? Is the man we see behind the pulpit the same as the one who lives in private and so forth? Moral scandal permanently damages the witness and testimony of those who are called to purify the world. So Christ says, how shall its saltiness be restored? And the implication is it can't be fully. You see, in the technology of the ancient world, once salt had become impure, once it had been contaminated by uh, dirt and oils, there was no process for purifying it again. Christ says in the same way, if you do not keep your guard up, if you do not persevere in your commitment to holiness and to purity, and you allow yourself to fall into moral scandal and rebellious living, make no mistake, you are permanently damaging your testimony for Jesus Christ. And then Christ warns us even further. He says, the salt that has become impure is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Wow. What the Lord Jesus is warning here is that when people who call themselves Christians have lives that are characterized by impurity, they will not only have ineffective ministries, they will have counterproductive ministries. It's not just that their ministry won't produce any real good, it's that they will do more harm than good. Here's the point that Christ is making. Among the many different uses of salt in the ancient world, salt served as a herbicide. If concentrations of salt were high enough in the soil, the soil would become completely unproductive. No seed could germinate there, take root, grow, and bear fruit. We see examples of this in Deuteronomy 29, 23, in Judges 9, 45, in Psalm 107, 33 through 34, in Jeremiah 17, 6, in Zephaniah 2, 9. We, we see it in other historical documents. For example, when the ancient Romans defeated the city of Carthage in the Second Punic War, they sowed salt all over the conquered enemy's fields. Why? So that it could never be fertile ground again. Ever made homemade ice cream? And you sprinkled that rock salt on top of the ice? Well, if you didn't know better, 
And after you made your homemade ice cream, you emptied that saline solution out on the lawn. You came back several days later, and what did you find? That green grass is now brown and shriveled. It's dying. And Christ says that is the effect of salt that has lost its purity. It no longer serves as a purifying agent. All it does is kill. Christ is going to warn about this very same thing in Luke 14, 35, when he says, ruined salt is useless for the soil and even for the manure pile, Christ says. Because even manure can serve as a fertilizer. It can promote growth. It can promote life. And Christ says, you better keep that impure salt out of the manure pile because you get enough salt there, all that fertilizer will do is kill, kill, kill. And the point is that if we Christians who have been called to be agents of purification in the world ourselves live impure lives and fall especially into heinous sin, our so-called testimony is only going to kill and destroy. What should have been a purifying influence becomes a destructive influence. It is dangerous, deadly, harmful, detrimental. You may know that Mahatma Gandhi lived for a while with the Christian family in England. And while he lived with that family, he carefully considered the claims of Christianity and by his own testimony came that close to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. But as he got to know the Christians that he had an exposure to, he kept seeing horrible examples of hypocrisy. He kept finding that these people talked the talk but didn't walk the walk. And in a horrible indictment against hypocritical Christianity, he made this statement. I would be a Christian if it weren't for Christians. What he means by that is he is powerfully attracted to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the biblical claims of Christianity. But when he looks in the lives of those who claim to be Christians, he does not see evidence of the gospel's transforming power. And we as followers of Jesus Christ are supposed to be exhibit A, confirming to the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes people's minds and hearts and character and behavior. And when our lives are filled with hypocrisy, rather than having an example that is winsome and attractive, we have one that is repulsive and disgusting to the world. After my recent accident and the surgeries and the physical therapy and all that, uh, one of the health workers that I worked with, <clears throat> I got to know a little bit. And as we carried on a spiritual conversation, I discovered that this man had at one time been a very faithful member 
of a Baptist church. A member who idolized his pastor. He said, then the word spread that my pastor had gone on a mission trip that wasn't really a mission trip. He was found in a brothel with several prostitutes. And he said, I haven't darkened the door of a church since. What happened? The one who should have been a purifying agent in the world was himself corrupt. Consequently, he had no ability to purify. All he could do was kill. The Lord Jesus goes on and he says, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, this is the background here. Once salt had become corrupted, it had to be disposed of very carefully. Couldn't just throw it out anywhere because it would kill whatever it touched. And so the ancients had learned that the best way to dispose of contaminated salt was just to dump it out on a footpath that had been trampled underfoot by people for so long that nothing could ever grow there anyway. In other words, they essentially used the contaminated salt as pea gravel to pave the ancient paths. Notice how Christ puts it. He doesn't just say they cast it out to be walked on by people's feet, but he says trampled by people's feet. It's a, it's a different verb, very different concept. To trample doesn't mean just to walk on or tread on. To trample means to step on in an expression of contempt and disgust. See the same imagery a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount when uh, Christ says, don't cast your pearls before the swine. Pigs want the little white peas that were so popular food for hogs in the ancient world. And if they chomp down on a pearl thinking it's a pea, all it's going to do is make them mad. All they're going to do is turn and trample the pearls underfoot in an expression of anger and contempt and disgust. Same word is being used here. So Christ's point is, a person who claims to be a follower of Christ, who doesn't live a Christian life of devotion and obedience with pursuit of moral purity, is going to do more harm than good. Their so-called testimony will be deadly and destructive, and it is going to inspire the contempt and disgust, even of unbelievers. Well, when I lived in Louisiana, there was a uh, politician who was well known in the state for his fight for family values. He, he stood for all the moral convictions that Christians should stand for. 
but it ultimately came out in the news that uh, he frequently visited uh, brothels in New Orleans and a huge scandal broke out. You want to know who broke the scandal? It was Hugh Hefner, the pornography king. Now, obviously, Hugh Hefner has no problem with the kind of conduct that he was indicting this politician for. Why did he come after him like that? Because even unbelievers detest a hypocrite. We're facing the very same thing in our evangelical Christian leadership today. I actually started listing some of the examples, but it became so depressing to me, I decided I'm not even going to do that. I'm not even going to name names. It is heartbreaking to see how much scandal there has been in the evangelical church and even in our own Southern Baptist Convention in just the last few years. Scandal after scandal after scandal. And whenever it happens, it is front page news in the New York Times and the Washington Post. And why? Because everyone hates a hypocrite. Now, sometimes professing Christians are persecuted because of their righteousness. And the Lord Jesus taught us that in the eighth beatitude and his commentary on it. He warned that we will sometimes be persecuted for righteousness' sake. But frankly, a lot of the so-called persecution that professing Christians endure isn't really Christian persecution. It's a culture that is understandably outraged and repulsed by the hypocrisy that we sometimes exhibit. What Christ is urging us here in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount is that we seek to live holy lives so that when we preach that the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just forgive sinners but transforms them, our witness will be credible. They see the transformation in us. And Christ warns, if they don't see the transformation in us, our testimony won't produce any good effect. On the contrary, it will only have a very bad and destructive effect. And it will only deepen the hatred of our culture toward those who claim to be Christians at large. What Christ is urging us to do is to take our proclamation of the gospel and wed it with holy living because only that will have a purifying effect on this world that becomes darker and darker with every passing moment. When the Barna Institute concluded its report on moral trends in America, they wrote these words, the data trends indicate that the moral perspectives of Americans are likely to continue to deteriorate. Compared to surveys we conducted just two years ago, significantly more adults are depicting sinful behaviors as morally acceptable. 
For instance, there have been increases in the percentages that condone sexual activity with someone of the opposite gender other than a spouse, abortion, a 20% jump in people's acceptance of homosexual activity, and that's in just a two-year period. Most of the people we interviewed believe that they are highly moral individuals, and they identify other people as responsible for the nation's moral decline. This is reflective of a nation where morality is generally defined according to one's feelings rather than by the teaching of Scripture. In a postmodern society where people do not acknowledge any moral absolutes, if a person feels justified in engaging in a specific behavior, then they do not make a connection with the immoral nature of that action. Deep inside, they sense something is very wrong in our society, but they simply have not put two and two together to recognize their personal liability regarding the moral condition of our nation. Until people realize there are moral absolutes and attempt to live in harmony with them, we are likely to see a continued decay in our moral foundations. The generational data patterns make a compelling case for this ongoing slide. Even most people associated with the Christian faith do not seem to have embraced biblical moral standards. Things are likely to get worse before they get better, and they're not likely to get better unless strong and appealing moral leadership emerges to challenge and redirect people's thoughts and behavior. Sadly, at the moment, such leadership is absent. That last statement is a terrible indictment to the Christian church. At the moment, such leadership is absent. It is the church's responsibility to plainly declare what is right and what is wrong. And it is the church's responsibility to live in accordance with what Scripture teaches about right and wrong. And it is our duty and privilege to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, which alone gives people the ability to do what is right and refrain from what is wrong. Be the church. Be the salt of the earth. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Maybe you feel completely powerless to have a purifying effect on the world around you because if truth be told, you recognize your own impurity. You, you recognize that there's not been a change in your life. You're still living the way you've always lived. Jesus Christ can change you. When he died on the cross, he died as the sacrifice for our sins, bearing the punishment for our sins in our place. And because of that, you can be forgiven. Every sin you've ever committed can be erased from the sight of the heavenly judge. But he didn't just die to forgive us. 
He came to transform us. And by his death, he initiated the new covenant, granting the Holy Spirit to the people of God to transform us from the inside out, to make us new and different people so that we can pursue holy living, so that we can obey the commandments of the Heavenly Father and even manifest the character of the Heavenly Father, becoming increasingly holy. If you've not experienced that change, then I urge you to receive that gift today by confessing faith in Jesus as God, as Savior, and as King. In a few moments when we sing together, I invite you to come forward and tell me or one of the church leaders that you've made a commitment to Jesus Christ today, and we'll tell you what the next steps are in your new Christian life. You can leave this place today both forgiven and transformed. Uh, many of us have been Christians for a long, long time. I pray that you're searching your heart right now and you're asking yourself, has my hypocrisy ever stood in the way of a person coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, God forbid that that should happen. God forbid that we who are called to purify the world have a deadly and destructive effect on it instead. Ask God to fill you with righteousness, to make you holy, so that others will see the difference in you and want what you have. The old hymn writer penned over a hundred years ago, purer in heart, O God, help me to be, until thy holy face one day I see. Keep me from secret sin, reign thou my soul within, purer in heart, help me to be. Let that be your prayer today that God would continue his transforming work in you so that your testimony will matter. And as you pray for increased holiness and exemplary lifestyle, pray that God would give you the boldness to share with others why your life is different, to compassionately and courageously share the gospel of the Lord Jesus. There is no other hope for our world. Dear Father, forgive us for so often failing in our mission to be the salt of the earth, sometimes because of our silence, hiding and hoarding the gospel for ourselves, and sometimes because of our hypocrisy, living like the world rather than exhibiting the character of the Father. Make us holy. Make us bold. Make us faithful to proclaim the good news. And let us never forget that it is our one and only true means for purifying this culture around us. In Jesus' name, amen.